Welcome to the Getting Real with Hillary show, where ordinary heroes tell extraordinary stories during unique and never been heard before conversations with your host, Hillary Arno Burns. Hillary's unique listening and way of asking questions results in conversations that aren't usually talked about. So you can create the life that you really want, but are afraid you can't really have. We are demonstrating the greatness in the human spirit and creating a world where we all reclaim our birthright of joy, happiness, purpose, and passion. Now, here's your host, Hilary Arno Burns. Hello and welcome to the Getting Real with Hillary show. And I am so thrilled and I'll probably start crying because that's what I always do to be here with my good friend, Raisha Bivens. Raisha's story. Oh my God. I can't wait to hear it. She is just, she's just a role model for um, courage, you know, going where people don't go. Um, when you hear her story, I want, I don't want to give any of it away, but you'll just be incredibly inspired and moved by who she is. So thank you, Raisha, for being here and for being willing to say what people don't talk about. So thank you. You're welcome. So in, in our little texting back and forth, you talked about some of your challenges as a teenager. One, the first one was with depression and I don't know where um, the other part, and I don't know if the depression was part of the other, um, but you want to cover, you cover it in the way that you would like to, so people can get a feel for that, for what you've overcome. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, from a young age, well, first of all, I'm, I'm from Bridgeport, Connecticut. And, um, you know, I was born in Norwalk, raised in Bridgeport and, you know, from a young age, um, myself and my family started uh, dealing with some challenges, some of which were poverty. Um, I think I was always, you know, someone that was considered, you know, gifted and talented in terms of educational standards. Um, but from a young age, probably around middle school, I started to really feel depressed and not feel good about, you know, who I was, right? I was um, kind of shy, kind of on the more quiet side. Um, and I, I went through some trauma in my life. You know, I actually experienced, um, you know, a molestation that, you know, it happened once, um, but that impacted me, um, that impacted, you know, my identity and how I saw that, saw myself. And even before that, I, I was struggling. I was struggling to accept who I was and to have a sense of belonging. Um, you know, I sort of felt like an outsider growing up and, and all of that contributed to me experiencing, um, you know, depression. And, um, so, yeah. So the, the, the molestation happened before the depression. Um, or was it already, I'm just wondering if that was, I mean, me and my, was, me and my yeah. no degrees of, of, of analyzing here, but just yeah. like for my mind, I wanted to know if that's what kind of triggered the depression or if that was if during it or after it just, just to be curious. Yeah, I think I think um after it it definitely got worse. Um mm -hmm. I think I might have been dealing with it before um okay. not as severely, you know, in terms of like not accepting myself and and feeling kind of bad about who I was. I think it definitely triggered it to get worse. Yeah. Okay. 
Woo! Okay, and then what? <laughs> yeah, and I um I think you know went through it. I I was in therapy for a very short time when I was um a teenager and I did try medications for a very short time. Um, and I, you know, I got through, right? Like I, you know, played basketball in high school. I had my circle of friends that supported me. Um, you know, but for a, a while, for a long time, I would say at least 10 to 15 years, I struggled with what, um, they will call dysthymic disorder, which is a reoccurring form of depression, um, that kind of happens in cycles. And, um, you know, I remember entering therapy again in my mid twenties and, um, that was like the first time that I really started to feel better. And, um, you know, when I actually participated um, in self-development work, you know, called the Landmark Forum, it was really the first time that I felt like I had gotten a handle on my depression in a way that I could actually stop the cycles from happening, right? Like I'm, you know, I'm a human being, I experience sadness. There are still times where sometimes I might feel um, the depression getting triggered, but to to be at the point where I was before, where sometimes I would feel hopeless, um, I don't experience that anymore. And that has been, you know, um, for at least 10 years, probably a little longer, um, you know, thanks to the self-development work that I've done in Landmark, the therapy work. And it's actually part of the reason why I've become um, a therapist. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there were there are a lot of things that stop me at any point here, Hillary. Yeah, let me just, can I just ask yeah. you one question? Because yeah. I, I, mean, I have moments of hopelessness. I mean, I, you know, don't, this morning I woke up like, you know, and, you know, I've done the same work as you. So I, I feel I have tools. I've been spending years developing tools to kind of, I call it the left side of life where everything is hopeless and wrong and blah, blah, blah. And then going back over to here. So, so I feel like I have tools for that when I can recognize yeah. it. When you say you felt uh, hopeless, like, was it, and again, I don't understand depression. So that's why I'm yeah. asking, like, how yeah. does someone know it's just a normal, yeah, I'm having a hopeless day. I'm powerless, whatever, all that stuff versus there's something wrong. And I got to, deal with like is it because you can't shake it like what does that look like I mean I'm yeah. just I'm asking for me because I'm curious yeah yeah very good question I think um depression really one of the ways that it's assessed to know if it's clinical depression and you really need to have more intervention is how much it impacts your functioning right okay. so if from day to day you're having difficulty um, you know, completing tasks or you're mm -hmm. not experiencing enjoyment and things that you used to experience enjoyment in, you know, or you're like from on a daily basis, you know, struggling with sleeping or not being able to stay asleep. You know, there's mm -hmm. there's actually um, screenings um, that, you know, most therapists uh, utilize and perform to really get um, a more objective, measurable, like number right to know okay. like how bad is your depression and, and you know for you to be clinically uh, depressed um there are screenings that can better guide that but it's more about your functioning you know is this okay. interfering with your functioning you know okay. over the it's past not just, it's not just a passing feeling it's Correct. it's okay all right cool all right and then you had mentioned um the other thing i don't know if you want to talk about that before we go on the teenage you know I want to let you tell the story. Um, remind me. I don't what teenage mother, teenage young oh, mother. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So here's so 
here I am, you know, um, you know, entering college, you know, still dealing with the depression on and off, but really happy to, you know, have a sense of freedom and a sense of independence. And um, so I went to college and um, Where did I, you go? Where I went did you to go Central live? Connecticut State University in New Britain. Okay. Um, did you stay there? You were, you were an overnight student. Yes, I, I okay, stayed. So you're out of Bridgeport. Okay, go ahead. I moved, I moved right into the dorm. Um, okay. Yeah, originally thought I would go out of state somewhere, but that ended up being the best place for me, the most financial aid. So I went there, moved in, and, um, you know, still had, you know, these kind of issues with myself lingering against the surface, underneath the surface. And I, um, you know, I started exploring, right? Like I started dating, um, being with different men, exploring, and um, I you know, I, I was not protecting myself, you know, I didn't, or I should say, I, I didn't always protect myself. And I found myself, you know, pregnant, you know, um, I was, I became pregnant as a sophomore in college. Um, I actually grew up in a really religious Christian household. And it was actually something that really empowered me in the face of the trauma and the things we dealt with. My foundation with God and Christianity was something that empowered me. And so when I became pregnant, um, this was something else that really triggered my um, self-disappointment and depression because I was always, that was one thing my mother did talk to me about was, you know, waiting till I was married to have sex, you know, um, you know, being abstinent and the benefits of that. And, um, you know, I was disappointed. I was disappointed in myself when that happened. I knew my mother would be disappointed. Um, I thought about a, a, an abortion and, you know, I, I ended up you know, I was very close to the marker when you're not supposed to have, you know, legally in Connecticut, you can't have an abortion anymore. And, you know, I just chose, I just chose to, to really go forward, um, you know, with the pregnancy, um, not necessarily knowing how I was going to make it work, but knowing that I was really committed to finishing college. Um, I think at that point I went to college, um, knowing that I wanted to study like psychology or social work. But I think at that point in my sophomore year, I was clear that I wanted to do social work and, um, you know, definitely went through a period of devastation at that point. But once I made the decision to have um, uh, my child, um, I made a decision. I also made a choice that I was not going to stop school. I wasn't going to stop college. And I began sharing with my friends. I had developed, you know, um, friends on campus. And, you know, once I ha got pregnant and, and actually, um, I, I developed even more friends and I really created this circle of women, like probably nine or 10 women that, you know, gathered around, they really supported me. You know, I remember talking to them about the fact that I didn't want to take time off, um, when I gave birth to my daughter and like every single person in my circle, in my community, they started, like pitching in, like we made a plan where they were going to come over my house to help me help babysit my daughter. And I'm getting moved because I don't share about this a lot. And it's really moving. And they came to my house. They babysat my daughter. I mean, she was a newborn. I went back to school. She was like two or three weeks. Her birthday is August 13th. And, you know, they really pitched in. You know, I remember bringing my daughter to the campus at Central Connecticut. I had gotten involved with the Women's Center as a social work major. You always have to do internships every semester. And one of my internships was the Women's Center and I developed such a bond um, with the director that she offered to have me bring my daughter to the Women's Center. Well, you know, so I would bring my daughter <laughs> to campus with me and 
these women would watch her. And I did everything like at that point when I, you know, decided I wasn't going to take time off. It became really clear to me that, thank you for this space. Um, it became very clear to me that the biggest difference that I could make for my daughter was going to be through the way that I lived my life. Mm. And I remember wanting to do so much, knowing that there was so much possible for me on the campus to contribute to. And before I got pregnant with my daughter, I was a, like, I let fear stop me a lot. And when I got pregnant and gave birth to my daughter, I made a choice that I was going to go after every single thing that I wanted to, that I wasn't going to let fear stop me. And, you know, it was like, I had fun before I had her, I was involved in things, but it was like this blossoming of a flower. Like I did everything that I wanted to. Like I remember being involved with the Black Student Union on campus. And if I really look, that is really where my activism started, right? You'll hear me touch upon my brother, but like I was in a leadership role on the Black Student Union and would do organizing on campus to really empower that community of people. Um, you know, I, you know, I used to co-facilitate this support group for women called United Sisters, you know, and it was for women of color to help women of color be empowered and deal with their trauma and talk about issues that they were facing as college students and have support. And, um, you know, I did everything <laughs> that I ever wanted to do. I developed a program for high schoolers to really promote, you know, um, students of color in urban areas to go to college and see that that was possible. So these were like things I did and, and becoming pregnant with my daughter at 19 really gave me the courage to go after everything that I want and know that, you know, I didn't have to be stopped. So I had this baby on my hip, <laughs> you know, and I would go to class and go here and, you know, be on campus with her. And I think people were really inspired by that. And, and you know, the Circle of Women, um, I'm forever in gratitude and, 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 you know, have so much thanks and love to them for the support that they showed me and my daughter that, um, I wouldn't have been able to do all that without them, their support. So, yeah. So thank you for asking that. <laughs> yeah. That, are you still in touch with them? Yeah. Most of them I'm still in touch with. Yep. I seen a few of them a couple months ago and, you know, relationships and circles of women go through things, but I'm thankful to say like, you know, we've been able to like kind of resolve any bumps in the road for the, for the most part. And, um, yeah, just grateful to have many of them still in my life, you know, so, yeah. And your, and your daughter is how old now? My daughter is 19. So wow. she's the age that I was when wow. I had her. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's just, it's just a blessing to, um, she's in college now, you know, she goes to Emanuel College in Boston and is pursuing her dreams, playing high school, uh, college basketball, which is something she re worked really hard on and had to overcome you know, some of her own self-doubt to, to achieve that, you know, and just, you know, went from like not starting, you know, last year as a freshman in basketball to now she's starting, you know, she's a starting player. And um, a lot of these principles that I've used to transform my own life, you know, the Landmark Forum and therapy and coaching, like I support her in that same way. And um, it's just a gift to see her step into her dreams and her own power and purpose. So, wow, that's incredible. All right. So back to... You know, you get pregnant and you said um, you were, it was more, I forget how you said it, but you were feeling yes. good about yourself. Like you, like you messed up or something. How, yeah. obviously it seems like you're, 
you know, the birth of your daughter gave you the courage to do all these amazing things, you know, still in college. Um, how did you let go of that? Like if for someone else who may, you know, be experiencing yeah. that, maybe they're pregnant now or, you know, they're they're blaming them, whatever, you know, how yes. did you get past that? Yeah, so really good question. I think um because you could have gone down I, the other way, you know, you could have gone home, felt sorry for yourself, you know, and and joined the life of poverty, you know, or whatever. Yeah. You could have given up, but you didn't. Yeah. You went the other way. So yeah. I do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think <laughs> I think um I think I made looking back, I made a choice to forgive myself, you know, to not, you know, wallow in the sadness and despair. And like I made a choice to not only forgive myself, but that a commitment that this was gonna work that I wasn't going to let anything stop me from being the person that I wanted to be in the world, you know, from making a difference for people, from making a difference for my daughter. That was the biggest thing that I shifted it from like, this was something wrong or this was a mistake. So this was an opportunity um, to make a difference for the world and to lead the way for my daughter through my actions. And that, that was like the biggest thing for me, knowing that I had a little girl that was going to be looking to mommy to see what was possible in her life. And I shifted, you know, my context from this, this was, you know, me failing to like, this was an opportunity to make a difference for my daughter and make a difference for the world by not giving up. And yeah. how does the 19 year old, I mean, I know you did the landmark for him and I could get after that, making that decision, but how did you have that in you? To even know, I mean, I, when I was in, I was just so focused on myself and I wasn't thinking about activism or yeah, (laughs) getting through the day and drinking with my friends. Like what, what had you be that? Do you have any idea? I mean, maybe it's something you can, but I'm, I'm wondering who are you? No, just kidding. (laughs) But in a great way, really in a great way. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Ironically, you know, I think it was, my mother did a lot of things right. Mm. She did a lot of things right. She really instilled from me from a young age that I could fulfill on anything that I wanted. Anything. I If I look at where that desire to be an activist and an advocate was birthed in me, it was when I was like a child. You know, I remember loving to read and, you know, like her knowing that and like getting me all these books on the civil rights movement and Hmm. raising me in the environment of the church. Like I was actually raised in an environment where my mother let me know and instilled in me constantly that I could do anything, you know, any, anything that I wanted. And she supported me with a lot of dreams, even as a child. And um, so, you know, ironically, even though I knew she would be disappointed and because she was a young mother, she had me at 18. Oh, um, okay. So she didn't want me to repeat that cycle because she knew what it was like, even though, you know, it was difficult for her, but she pushed through with me. Um, You know, she instilled that in me that I can do anything that I want. And even in the face of difficulties, challenges and, and hardship and, you know, being raised, you know, because of her leadership, being raised around the church, you know, the values that were instilled is that hope is always possible. Wow. You know, no matter what, hope is always possible. So ironically, she instilled that in me. Yeah. You know, not to not to give up, not to to lose hope. And um wow. I was able to rest on those values in, in that in that situation. And and um yeah, that was it. That was what carried me through. 
Whew. All right. So we've gotten to, um, we have a few more minutes in this, in this yeah. half. I call okay. it more intermission. Yeah. So, okay. So you, you know, you're, you got out of, you graduated college and your daughter's now a couple years old. And then where did you go from there? Yeah. I like, you know, when I was in college, you know, and got so connected to my purpose and excuse me, I ended up getting into a lot of like fashion and the arts. When I was a senior in college, I started, you know, being in fashion shows and I found that really healing. And then at the same time, as I was like discovering that artistic side of myself, I decided to get my master's in social work right after um, college. So I went from undergrad to pursuing my master's in social work at UConn. And, um, you know, honestly, you know, that was like me just stepping right into my purpose. And I can remember like dealing with another depression because I think that was triggered by the transition. Here I, here I was, I went from this big community of, um, you know, women and and friends and support to like in college to, you know, not a lot of my friends went right on to get their master's or even at the same school. So even though I knew that was my purpose to get my master's, I the depression came up again, right? And I and I ended up just um slowing the pace down, you know, taking three years to get my master's rather than two. And um, you know, I delved fully into fashion at the time. I actually, you know, at one point was considering um getting a degree in fashion because I found that to be really healing when I was dealing with the depression, you know, fashion styling, you know, helping other people be their best selves through how they look. And so I actually pursued that and, um, you know, became a stylist and, you know, was hired to do that in, in Connecticut while I was still pursuing my master's and hosted a lot of shows. And that became like a, this other outlet of expression for me and, and really making a difference for people. Um, Were you, you know, and, yeah. What, so, so when you say that, I'm wondering, were you a model? Like, were you the one going down the runway? Were yeah, you, I, yeah. Like, how did, what were you doing? I mean, that is so foreign yeah. to me. It's like, I need someone to dress me. So, so what, yes. what were you I doing? Do, I did do a lot of modeling in the beginning, but what, what I really loved was styling people. So that is like helping people dress, you know, to be their best selves, you know, helping them to have a makeover where they're more aligned, you know, who they're, when they dress up, who they are, who they're being is more aligned with who they were, really are, you know, their purpose, wow. their being. So I would like, you know, style people who wanted to have like this elevated way that they presented themselves to the world. Right. You know, or I would, I would also do it with like models for photo shoots, you know, um, every model needs a portfolio. Artists need, you know, visuals, they need media, you know, to represent themselves. And so, I did styling for a while where I was style individual clients. And then I created my own company where we targeted like models, uh, fashion designers and music, music artists. And we not only styled them for photo shoots, we did, you know, like marketing for them. Like we would do the whole package, right? Photos, you know, videos so that they would have this media to market themselves. And so, yeah, wow. that, that was now, were just you, like a huge love. Yeah. Were you working for a company? Like, how did you do this? You're 22 years old. Did you just start it yourself? I mean, yeah. I started it myself. That's and, amazing. Um, yeah. Thank you. And like, how do you really just was... get clients? I mean, how does that happen? <laughs> so, you know? um, and you're this... at school, right? With a baby. Yeah. And yeah, I was, that's I amazing. Was pursuing my master's. <laughs> uh, you know, what you're helping me realize is that there's this theme of community in my life because, you know, in Connecticut, if you were to talk to people in New York, 
at that time, you know, when I was in my 20s and pursuing this, it was popular in New York, but nobody really knew about styling Connecticut. Just like, like you're like, what is that? You know, what? Tell me yeah. more. Right. But it was really like I began to connect with people in the fashion and the arts community in Connecticut who had similar goals. I connected with somebody else who wanted to be a stylist. And I can remember he invited me to co-host his first fashion show in Hartford. And from there, I just connected with more and more people, more designers, people that had those same dreams. And, you know, I remember having a friend from college who was successful in fashion styling. And I was like, well, how do I start? And he was like, create your portfolio you know, do a photo shoot. And that's what I did. You know, I just thought, I just listened to people. I asked and I listened to people and um, started my own company, but became known in the community here in Connecticut. And that was how, you know, I got clients and just through sharing, right? Like this podcast wow. is sharing, like it's just sharing is like a pathway to creating whatever we want. So that's how I did it. And um, yeah, any other questions before I... <laughs> keep talking <laughs> yeah no, no 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 I love that yeah. um we're about to go on our break but just so so just tell me like how old you were at this point that you were and how many years and how'd you go to college and have a baby like you I know you just yeah. but it's it might seem easy now but to some like me I'm just like yeah. what? yeah I think like <laughs> I um you know at this point when I was getting my master's I even when I was an undergrad I did find like a child care provider that okay. I could rely on and, um, you know, I had some support through some programs that the government offered to pay for child care. So she was in a child care okay. with someone I really trusted. And, um, you know, she would be there when I was in classes. And then, um, yeah, I just had a community of people that supported me, you know, when I was doing these shows and my family supported and babysitting. And, you know, it was, um, I know looking back, it, it seems so easy, but I developed these connections and these a community of support. Yeah. That supported so it seems me. like you were networking and you would just ask, Hey, how do I do this? And they would tell I, you and you would do it. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Wow. That's exactly it. That's so cool. Awesome. Okay, good, good. All right. So we'll take our little intermission break okay. and then we'll come back and we'll hear more about what, how you got to where you are now. Has social-emotional learning become just one more thing on your teacher's plates? Do teachers and students both find it boring and ineffective? Then bring Kikori to your school. Kikori transforms classrooms through experiential SEL activities that help students play, reflect, connect, and grow. Even better, students say it's more fun than recess. Schedule a no-obligation conversation at kikoriapp.com slash bringkikori. K-I-K-O-R-I. Do you ever feel like you can't say what you really want to say? Or that you're stuck or in a holding pattern in your relationships, career, personal life, or finances? Are there things you want in life that you've given up on? Are you resigned that this is as good as it's going to get? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then Hillary Burns, host of the Getting Real with Hillary show, has the solution you need. Hillary is a published author of three books and has a program called The Getting Real Process. This process frees you from what is holding you back, allowing you to create a life you love. Don't believe it? It is hard to believe that it could work, isn't it? The proof is that hundreds of Hillary's clients have used The Getting Real Process and are now free to create whatever they want in relationships, career, finances, 
enjoying life, or just loving themselves more. So go to realtalkwithhillary.com and order Hillary's book, Real Talk, and set up a conversation. That's my daughter's company, so I always love hearing her voice. <laughs> oh, beautiful. She's, yeah, she's in Brazil right now, just you know, playing. So playing and working. So it's a good, it's a good life. Um, all right. So, all right. So you're doing all that. How many years did you do the fashion? And then when did you do the landmark forum? And then how did all that transition now? Yeah, I was uh like in fashion probably for like nine years, nine or 10 years. And I still, you know, um, do it in a certain capacity in terms of blogging and with my husband and helping other people with media. Um, so yeah, I think it was around like 10 years or so in terms of having a company with that specific mission or styling and freelancing around that. Mm -hmm. And then, um, yeah, I did the landmark forum. I was, it was about 10 years ago. Um, that I did the landmark forum and um, yeah I found out about it through a friend actually somebody I was dating and things didn't work out with that person but we kept connected and I was so moved by the fact that they wanted to contribute to me and I was moved by like who they were that they they were able to be vulnerable um, mm -hmm. and I had no idea what the forum was I just knew that they thought it would make a difference in me you know healing my relationship with my mother um, that was in a different place at the time. And, um, you know, I trusted them and, and just, you know, jumped in. So it's been 10 years, about 10 years. Okay. All right. And so, all right. So when, so I don't know, I don't want to pry how old you were, but how old were you then? So I know you got through college, you're doing the fashion, your daughter's growing up. Yeah, that's fine. I think, so I, I was about 30, I think I'm 39 now. So I was about 30 mm -hmm. or 29, maybe okay. 29 when All I right. did the poem. Yeah. Okay. So then, yeah. so I don't know if you want to say after that or whatever, I know you, we want to talk about your brother and what you've been doing. Yeah. For How did all of that, I mean, you, to me, you know, you were already powerful and doing what you wanted and amazing yeah. I mean, if you want to say how that impacted you, you can, or just, you know, how you got into, you know, your more political activism, obviously with your brother sure. and, and became a trauma therapist. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um. So yeah, I definitely like was powerful and fulfilling, you know, things that were important to me. I think I, I took the landmark form because I still had like, you know, something, things unresolved. And I also wanted to have more confidence as an entrepreneur because, at that point, I was making making a transition from doing um, like a fashion media with my boyfriend at the time to like focusing more on a creative company that empowered female entrepreneurs in the creative arts. And like, you know, I had the vision for it. I had the name, but I felt like really um, kind of paralyzed and I wasn't really clear why I was not moving forward um, with that vision. And, you know, I discovered in the forum that I was just letting my fear stop me. Right. So like the beautiful thing about the forum is like we all have areas that are working and sometimes we have areas not working. So the forum really empowered me to bring that same courage that I had in other areas of life and confidence uh, to the business that I wanted to start for female entrepreneurs in the creative arts. 
Um, and just to knowing like that I could that being limitless, right? Being limitless. And um, you know, so I ended up going forward with that company for female entrepreneurs in the creative arts. And I just remember like <laughs> being in my forum and like, you know, um releasing all this content that I had, you know, it was again like I was modeling, I started modeling again. So I had a blog where I would combine my poetry with the images all to support and empower women. And, you know, I did that. I had a, a you know, a band at one point, you know, um, a children's band where I was empowering uh, them, including my daughter. She's a singer. She was in the band as well um, to just express their talents and make a difference. And, um, you know, I've gone on to produce music videos, short documentaries. These are all things that I dreamed of before the forum, but there was something there like, Oh, I can't do that. I studied social work. So like it impacted me that mm -hmm. way. But I, I went on to, you know, do more of the curriculum in Landmark and a leadership program. And I really like just got at the source of my depression and, and stopped experiencing those cycles after, um, you know, completing the curriculum with Landmark and doing the leadership program. And one of the things that happened, you know, while I was in my leadership program is that in Landmark is that my brother was going through a court case at the time. And he was, um, I just, I got really connected in that program to the difference that I wanted to make on an even higher and more profound level. And I just remember supporting my brother through his court case. He didn't face any incarceration or anything at the time. Um, but I left that program just really getting that I'm someone that makes a difference in the world and that I can make a difference wherever I want. And, um, you know, lo and behold, a couple of years later, um, probably, you know, maybe four or five years later, my brother ended up, you know, being incarcerated. And um, for what? Um, well, I don't really want to talk about his charge. OK. Yeah. I what no, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. You have a question. What I will say is well, that he. Yeah, he was. Um, I mean, so I mean, to be incarcerated, you're either accused of something you did do or didn't do, and right. I mean, you don't just yeah. So, jail, so he was. So. In, yeah, he was. He was charged with an assault, which we ended up learning was self defense. Okay. And, um, you know, I'll I'll bring that back into the story later on. Okay. But yeah, okay. he was he was charged with an assault. Okay. But he was. The and, yeah, and my brother. Um, you know, again, and while I was in the leadership program, we. We were always close, but I, what I would say transformed for me is that I realized I could make a difference in the way that I wanted to make with him. And he um, is someone that has experienced a lot of trauma through his life and, you know, been physically abused and has had a lot of people murdered um, in his life, you know, because that's just what he was exposed to in the community that we grew up in. And, and so I was very close to him when the incarceration happened and I was devastated. You know, I was there was a moment where it happened and I was just like, you know, knowing his charges, knowing how much time he could possibly face. And I was um, at that point, you know, leading programs for Landmark. And I just remember I was scheduled to lead a program that day. And I, I really got that I wasn't responsible for his incarceration. Mm -hmm. And I created that through this situation, through him being incarcerated, that I was going to ensure that he got the treatment that he needed. Right. Because I was very clear as someone who at that point was, you know, a, a social worker for probably nine years at that point, that everything that happened that led to his incarceration was connected to his well-being. Um, because I don't think I shared, you know, he has schizophrenia. My brother has post-traumatic stress disorder. 
from being a witness to brutal domestic violence that my mother um, experienced and actually uh, ran away from a brutal attack. But he was the one that came home to see her on the porch after an attack um, where her former partner that she had left hid in her closet um, with an alcohol bottle. When she sat on the bed, jumped out and started beating her in the face with the glass alcohol bottle. He was uh, the one, my brother came home at 13 years old and saw her on the porch after she had escaped with puddles of blood at his feet uh, and, and at her feet. And he had to call the ambulance. He had to go get the nurse. He had to, you know, put, you know, towels on her face. And, and that was the source of him getting PTSD. That probably was what triggered his schizophrenia, which he didn't develop till he was in his 20s. Um, but as a therapist and a licensed clinical social worker, we know that people can be predisposed to certain mm. conditions, but it will only be triggered if they experience something in their environment. So, um, mm. you know, I knew at that point when he was incarcerated that everything that led to his incarceration was linked with his well-being um, and his trauma and not necessarily having um, the most appropriate treatment. Um, the, he didn't have the treatment that he needed. And um, and so really through all of the, you know, distinctions and the transformational training I had through Landmark, I was able to shift my context from this is going to, you know, be awful to like, I'm going to make sure that he gets the care that he needs through the situation. And that led me through. I remember the after the that day that I found out he was incarcerated and I led that program, you know, a week later. You know, I was at a cookout, you know, sitting with people that I didn't know it was a friend of mine's cookout. And like, you know, five minutes later, you know, I'm just sharing my brother just got incarcerated. And five minutes later, I'm finding out that the person across the table from me actually admitted my brother into the prison and was able to tell me he was OK. Wow. And, and that is the kind of inexplicable magic that happens when you live life based on, you know, your word, based on what you're declaring versus the circumstance. And that's what I did. I just, you know, I kept doing that um, throughout his incarceration where I knew, you know, Connecticut, just for some context for people, Connecticut is a state that does recognize that it's most ethical to deter um, people, you know, who have criminal charges and mental illness from prison, right? Because 99% of the time, if people are incarcerated and they have a mental illness, it is linked to what ha it's linked to their charge, right? So although mm -hmm. Connecticut recognizes that it's most ethical to place people in treatment settings with criminal charges, in reality, they're not doing that. In, in reality, it's very subjective. It's not like a practice that they do with everybody that has mental health issues. And, you know, he was charged with a felony, right? So that was even uh, a bigger barrier. But I kept living into he's going to get the care that he needs. And I just would have conversations, you know, with people, um, the social worker in his prison, the discharge planner, people all over the state of Connecticut about what is available, what other options, where else can he be while he's awaiting trial? Because his case was pre-trial for three years. And wow. he, so he was not convicted. He was incarcerated for three years without having a trial. And that is common, right? Like part of the reason I became an advocate on a more, you know, statewide level is to impact those conditions for all people because it's not just my brother um, who experienced circumstances like this where they're held without um, a, a trial, they're not convicted, they're not found guilty, which legally you're supposed to have a right to a trial before, you know, really doing prison time. That's not how it happens um, in the state of Connecticut or in this country. So um, I was determined to to really get him the treatment that he needs and get him into a treatment setting while he was awaiting trial. And um, there was a lot of barriers, 
you know, there were times where, you know, I, you know, I would, I pretty much shared with my brother's attorney, this is what I wanted to accomplish. And she really supported me in being her partner. Um, actually, at some point when my brother was incarcerated, I became his conservator. So that is a legal appointment by the court, by the probate court, that legally I have the authority to make decisions for him uh, from a healthcare standpoint, from a financial standpoint. He appointed me uh, voluntarily, not because he's not competent to make his own decisions. And um, my brother's attorney saw me as a part of his defense team, right, because mm -hmm. of the conservatorship role. And, um, you know, it took something. It really took something. You know, we had to we went back to the judge multiple times, you know, just even to get the judge to allow him to be evaluated to be in, in a treatment setting. Then he ended up being evaluated to be in a treatment setting while he, a pretrial treatment setting while he was awaiting trial and they denied him. And, you know, really, if it wasn't for, you know, these transformational tools, I would have given up because people mm -hmm. were telling me it wasn't possible. He was going to face eight years. Um, but I pretty much became like a co-attorney. And I, I remember looking at files related to the charges and, um. You know, just um, initially, you know, we were going to go a certain route in terms of um, there is a defense in Connecticut where you um not guilty by reason of insanity, which is not the best. We were going to go that route and decided to, um you know, do what's called the Alfred's plea. And it just really was taking a stand that this was going to go the way that I wanted, that he was going to get the care that he needed. Um, that allowed for us ultimately at almost the three year mark. Um, it was during the height of COVID. Um, my brother had diabetes. He was on insulin at 29 years old. He was becoming obese, which is not the way that he entered into the system. He was wow. becoming more symptomatic, you know, with schizophrenia, you know, hearing voices, which he was in college before his incarceration and working a full-time job. So he was deteriorating. And at that point, you know, I, I just, you know, I went back to my brother's attorney and I just said, like, you know, this doesn't, you know, it doesn't work. You know, he's more at risk for COVID. And finally, at that point, a judge listened and lowered my brother's bonds. Um, it was a very high bonds, you know, you know, around 250,000. And, you know, I approached the bench and that day, you know, when I could see the, the judge still hesitating and just shared that, you know, if she allowed, lowered his bond and allowed him to go into a treatment setting that he wasn't even going to return to the community until he was stable. And um, a judge listened and granted it. And she had saw all of the actions I had taken over those three years, right, that were a part of the file and and just really like just acknowledge, you know, she acknowledged me that day, you know, for just my stand in the matter. And um he ended up going to one of the best hospitals um, in, in Connecticut at that time. And then from there, I was able to advocate through his attorney um, and with the prosecution that he get the time he already served, you know, the three years for his charge mm -hmm. and um, never go back to prison. And they and they granted it. They agreed to it. And um, so he never had a trial. He didn't need to have a it trial. Was, it, it, no, it was pretty much. Um, nope. Wow. It was, they made that agreement for for him to get the time served that he already wow. served. And, um, wow. you know, he is on something called uh, mental health special parole. But um, again, this is all a part of the work that I did to see what would have the prosecution agree, right? Because what people want to know is that people are safe, right? And, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, wow. they're not going to, you know, pose any risk to the community. So I just, again, in relation the relationships that I made, you know, learning the system and learning how I could 
just really compel them that he would have the supports um, that he needed so that this wouldn't, um, you know, nothing like what happened would happen again. And wow. yeah. That's amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And he's, he's been, no, I mean, most people would have quit yeah. or not known where to go. Or, I mean, I'm like, I have so many questions, but you know, I want to go on to what you're doing now, but, but yeah. you know, just to just keep going no matter what at every dead end, you know, it seems easy now, but I remember when you were going through it and congratulations. I mean, that's, that's not a lot of people would do that. So thank you. Thank you for your work. You. Yeah. Yeah. Really amazing. Woo. So he, and he's, he's in good hands now and he's out of prison and yay. Yeah. He's been in the community for, um, the anniversary was on the 20th. Cause I will never forget yeah. the day it was inauguration day two years ago. Oh, wow. about serendipity. Two years. And he's, wow. he's starting, he's returning to college in two weeks to um, oh pursue God. his degree in marketing and fashion. He has a fashion line that my husband helped him start and to empower people from our urban communities that they can overcome their trauma and that they can fulfill what they want. And that's his mission. And he's on that pathway and he's on the road to, you know, being able to get his own apartment um, probably in another six months or so, he he has a girlfriend that he loves dearly and he's, you know, he, he has trauma. So that still comes up, but he's on the road to, he's been dealing with it powerfully and advocating for his own needs. So, wow. yeah. Unbelievable. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Well, thank you for that. Thank I mean, you. You know, it, I, it seems like, yeah, you know, he just talked to the judge. But, <laughs> no, I know it wasn't, it wasn't that easy when you were going through it. So, wow. Amazing, amazing work. All right. So now, so what else do you want to tell us? Let's see, we have seven minutes, so we'll wrap it okay. up in about five, but um, I know you're a trauma therapist. You want to talk about yes. that? What, what is the, what is your, like, where do you want to see the world in five years or what <laughs> do you want to leave on the world? I know you're amazing. You're strong. You're an advocate for so many different things. What, what, what is the thing you would like to leave people with? Yes. Um, there's so much in that question. So first and foremost, <laughs> like, I want to really leave people with that. Anything you want is possible. Anything you want is really possible. We sometimes doubt that. We sometimes hesitate, even when it comes to our own dreams and ideas and our own visions that I believe, you know, God, if you believe in God, you know, God places those, right? Or, you know, whatever you identify with spiritually, those are divine. There's a reason we have the visions and the ideas that we have. And so really anything you want is possible. And in terms of like the trajectory that I'm on now, I became a trauma therapist um, a little over two years ago because I wanted to help people get to the root of their trauma. And many people that are incarcerated actually have trauma that they've never addressed, which is linked to their incarceration. So that's part of my mission. Um, as a trauma therapist is to help people heal from trauma um, and really, you know, take control over their lives. And um, I do serve uh, people that are just as impacted and that have been incarcerated. I also serve women um, and and uh, the practice, the group practice that I work in um, is targeted, you know, towards supporting people um, of color and we serve all people. Um, and um, And I love that work. I love it. I love it, love it, love it. And um, I also, um, everything that you heard me share about with my brother uh, led me also to, you know, become a social justice advocate on a statewide level. And I'm really happy to share that I was a part of um, a legislative committee for the last, you know, three years where we got a law 
um, not only passed in the Senate, in the House in Connecticut, but signed into law last year. Um, it's called the Protect Act, which restricts the use of solitary confinement in prisons, right? Um, which is considered torturous. You know, when you hold people in those um, in isolation for beyond 15 days, it's actually considered torturous by the United Nations. So, wow. summary is we got a law implemented in Connecticut um, last year to, you know, really ensure people get uh, mental health treatment when they're incarcerated. And that they're truly rehabilitated, that they're not more damaged than when they entered, right? Because most people incarcerate, incarcerated return to the community and the system, um, the way that it's designed is, is harming them more and not rehabilitating them. So that's what that law does. And I'm also going to be going on to do national work, um, work on a national level to empower people that um, have been in solitary confinement to use their voice to fulfill their dreams and, um you know, uh, there's a lot of other stuff I could speak about because I'm still an entrepreneur, still creative, still making space for other creative entrepreneurs to fulfill their dreams to uh, through two other companies that I have. But what I really want to leave you with is what you want is possible. Get the support that you need. Start sharing, you know, about what it is that matters to you, because a lot of this that I shared about, I was able to fulfill it because I started sharing. You know, I, I, you know, I manage in my daytime, I manage a cosmetic dental office um, and I would share with my patients. That's how I met someone who was on this committee to end solitary confinement. And she ended up inviting me to be a part of the board. And one thing led to another. Right. So share. You never know who you will connect with through sharing what you're committed to in your life, even if you don't know how to start. And OK, just one last question. You, when you were young, you were shy, you said. Yes. <laughs> How did you overcome that? I mean, you're so bold. You share, you know, all this stuff. You know, that's how you've met all these incredible connections to make all this happen. Is it hard for you to say it or are you just used to it now? Like, does it just. No, I think I think, um, you know, one, you know, when I went to college, I really stepped into my voice and my purpose in a whole new way. And then the Landmark Forum helped me profoundly just develop this unlimited level of confidence and um, freedom around what I'm committed to. So um, both things, just, you know, just like, you know, finding my own voice, being out on my own helped me to just be confident about what it is I have to say. And, and we only have one life, you know, and what we have mm. to say matters. And that's how I relate to myself now, right? Whereas before, I think when I was uh, struggling with the shyness and the lack of confidence, I didn't relate to myself as I mattered. And when I shifted that, there is there is no stopping me. And I don't think there's stopping anyone when you realize how much what you have to say matters. And that's where I live my life from and, and why I don't I don't struggle with that anymore. So, wow, that's really incredible. Well, thank you so much for. What you've done, <laughs> not what you've done. I mean, it's incredible. It's not nothing. And I know it might seem, you know, effortless or easy to people, but I know, you know, at every step you could have said, meh, this is too hard, but you didn't. So really, thank you. Thank you, Hillary. Thank you for having me. I didn't realize, like, just being here got me present to everything that I've overcome and accomplished in a different way. So it's been a gift for me. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.